Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Russia's war in Ukraine has changed everything. Thousands have died amidst mass destruction of Ukraine's cities, factories, and infrastructure. Europe and the United States have imposed unprecedented sanctions on Russia and are providing almost unlimited military and economic support to keep Ukraine in the fight, a fight which looks like it could continue for some time. The knock-on effects are shaking the global economy, contributing to food shortages, perhaps famine around the world, and imperiling global political stability. I'm Alan Stoga, chairman of the Telberg Foundation. Recently, I was joined by three deeply knowledgeable political observers for a conversation about the war. Pierre Lelouch, former French minister and politician, Nico Zadakis, Greek journalist and former minister, Tomas Anker Christensen, Danish diplomat, who joined us in his personal capacity. Let's begin with two questions. First, Are we near the beginning or the end of this war? Second, all wars eventually end. What will bring this to a conclusion, and then what happens? Well, these are two two horribly difficult questions. Historians, when they would look back at this, will probably find that this could have been avoided, entirely avoided because Ukraine problem has been there forever, uh, for a thousand years, and it's been there for 30 years since independence of Ukraine. And it's a result, what we see here is a result of a lot of of messy policies, very messy. Uh, Clearly the Russians never accepted uh, the end of the empire. Putin certainly never accepted it. The Ukrainians themselves were incapable of putting together a democratic state, functioning democratic state. It was a highly corrupt, incompetent, divided country. I know because I've been involved since the early 80s, I even have a medal from Yushchenko for supporting the revolution and so on. So they could never get their act together as to the reconciliation between the uh, western part of the country, which was under Austrian uh, domination for a long time, Austrian-Polish, and the other part, which is very much Russian. When I hear people talking about Odessa as a Ukrainian city, it is not. It was created by Catherine II. Crimea was taken from the Turks by Catherine II. Mariupol was Greek. With a lot of Jewish people and Greek people. So uh, to talk about a Ukraine as if, you know, all of a sudden it exists, uh, no, it was, a, it was a complicated country in a very complicated geography throughout history. And we sort of messed it up all along, uh, the Americans, the Europeans, the Russians. So, so what we're seeing here is a result of a series of miscalculations, 
the biggest of all, uh, which will remain in history books, is a miscalculation by Putin himself, believes that he could invade it and do Crimea again quickly in a few days, grab the country, create a fair accompli, everybody would accept it, and that's it. Didn't, what, he, what he missed was a number of things, his army, Ukrainian army, Ukrainian people, but he missed this, the mobile phone. Every Ukrainian has been a journalist, a photojournalist. Uh, and suddenly, the image of the Second World War arrived in every family in Europe and in America. So they saw the war live on, on their telephone. Something they never saw for the war in Libya. Or even in Belgrade, when we bombed Belgrade. Uh, let alone in Afghanistan, and I was in charge of Afghanistan. I know, you know the disaster we created there. Uh, but all of a sudden, it was back to uh, World War II. And this is a war of emotion and media communication. And the irony is that the guy who is in charge in Ukraine was completely incompetent politically. He's an actor. Is a tremend tremendously efficient when using modern means of communication. A situation where the guy who is invaded has turned into a hero. He appears anywhere and then the standing ovation, every parliament. They are running to Rome, you know, like a procession of leaders bowing to, the, to Mr. Zelensky, who was completely unknown in the hand of an oligarch with a highly corrupt entourage, by the way and never able to, to produce a result for the Minsk Agreement, which was a sort of local reorganization, constitutional reform, which he couldn't get. And that's why we have this. So Putin makes a huge mistake. Uh, the Americans, I am so annoyed with the way they run this from, from the very beginning. Um, with, with zigzags all the time. But one of the zigs was in Bucharest in, in April 2008, George Bush Jr. pushed by a number of Poles and Ukrainian lobbies in Washington and so on, says, okay, I want Ukraine into NATO. And the French and German, and I was working for Sarkozy at the time, we understood that this was red line for the Russians. So we said, no, 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 let's, let's try to get them in the EU the way we got others into EU, which is a neutral status, some kind of status that would preserve the integrity and let us open the way to Europe, but let's not touch NATO. The compromise that was found in 2008 was, as every compromise, a mess, because it says they don't enter, but they will enter at some point. So for the Russian, it was red flag. The Ukrainian rushed to put this into their constitution. And of course, the Americans say, we will not protect you. And to the last minute, to the last minute, they said, they're welcome, but we won't protect them. Two days before the war, there was a meeting in, in Munich called the Munich Security Conference, which is the, the Davos of, of political military stuff. Kamala Harris was there. 
28 ministers of defense and foreign affairs and military and they got Zelensky to come to Munich, made a speech. Everybody applauded. But the room was full of Chamberlains and Daladier who said, you know, you can go back to Ukraine. You're welcome, but we won't protect you. And Biden says, I'm going to move out every one of my military advisors. So that was a signal given to Putin. And Putin made this miscalculation. At the beginning of the war, there was no American policy. There was a lot of noises in Europe. Uh, von der Leyen said, they're welcome in Europe, and so on, which, how? Different question. Uh, of course, uh, they could never enter Europe because they were corrupt, and they had, you know, very poor, and they were not ready in, in terms of legal uh, legislation and so on. But von der Leyen said, they welcome to Europe. And the Americans said nothing, continued to say, well, we will do what the Ukraine wants us to do. And then all of a sudden, about three weeks ago, there was a fundamental change in American policy because of the difficulties of the Russian armies on the ground. The Americans decided that the war aim has changed. They are, we are now dealing with a butcher, a war criminal, a killer, a genocider. This is Biden's word. The Ukraine deserve victory and we will accompany them to victory. And at the same time, we will degrade Russian army so that they can never do this again. So it's a complete shift of strategy in which we send huge amount of military assistance, heavy military assistance. Uh, the budget, as I said yesterday, is the total budget of equipment of the French army, including nuclear weapons, has been given in a matter of weeks. Uh, of course, it has a result. Uh, all US intelligence is at work. And they say, we are not at war with Russia. We are just helping a Ukrainian. Okay, the result of this, is an absolute mess because a lot of people are dying, of course. The war is going on. It is spreading, de facto, into Transnistria, maybe tomorrow in Moldova. It will spread in the Republika Sverbska and probably in the Balkan. It is spreading economically extremely fast with major consequences on food. I think you will go back to this on food. Because these two countries, Ukraine and Russia, feed 30 or 50% of humanity, de facto, through grain or fertilizers. Let me interrupt just a second with that background. You've described how the Americans have driven the changed purpose. And I wanted to ask Tomas, who lives inside the EU decision-making process, um, whether or not there's any European decision-making process, in fact that is deciding war aims, other than everyone wants to host Zelensky on their Zoom box. Um, how, how, is, how do you see Brussels and, and that European ecosystem, political ecosystem, thinking about this, if it's thinking at all? I'm not that close to the political decision-making, Alan, but... Uh, That's why it's a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for now, um, Europe doesn't have a military voice or a security voice. Uh, we are following the American lead, but 
because NATO is going through great pains to uh, to demonstrate to the Russians that NATO is not at war with Russia. Um, this discussion is not happening within NATO, which is one of the reasons, as, as uh, Pierre described it, uh, that, that the U.S. Uh, flipped or flopped without really consulting or being in close cooperation with its allies. Um, and there is now this 40-country uh, uh, getting together that, that first happened in Rammstein at the U.S. airbase a few weeks ago where, where people are trying to coordinate a little bit, but we've all been pouring in nationally uh, military goods and, and of course some coordination amongst European countries, but it does not happen inside the EU. What happens inside the EU is a conversation on borders, on, on food, on energy, but primarily still for internal EU um, uh, management of, of the crisis. And uh, at European level, we have not yet come to um, discuss what the consequences for the rest of the world are, including for developing countries in Africa and the food situation that described. Uh, we know what it looks like, and I think especially the Germans have been very vocal in saying that they carry part of the responsibility, uh, not for the war, but for being dependent on Russian gas and uh, hence causing an energy crisis in Europe that spills into higher prices in the rest of the world because Europe is uh, sucking up gas from everywhere and now also driving prices for renewable energy higher and also then for, for the food crisis that comes from it and that that is a, a German and a European responsibility. But from that acknowledgement and then to actually taking action on it, uh, that that has not really... I mean, happened to full, it's full yet. The war is driven by emotion. And so governments are reacting to emotion. The Germans began very carefully by saying, okay, I will give you helmets. They're now getting, get, giving anti-aircraft anti tanks. Why? Because Olaf Scholz could not survive the pressure uh, from the public opinion and then into the left. So ironically, the left, the German left and the Greens have become the greatest warmongers. At the same time as, as they are closing nuclear weapon, uh, power station in Germany. The irony is the Greens are closing the nuclear power station in Germany and they also say you have to close the gas and sell the weapons. So you have uh, things like that in several countries. And Ursula von der Leyen, who is, used to be defense minister in Germany and doesn't have really a very good reputation there in the political class, has now found the greatest job in her life. She's an autoproclaimed war chief of Europe without a mandate. She's elected by nobody. And she talks about bringing Ukraine to EU, going to victory. And the Belgium uh, president of the council talks about victory, Mr. Vichel. You know, what the hell is a Belgium army? I mean, the Russians start a fucking war, what the Belgium and Mr. Michel will do. And, and, and so they're all, all behaving like mice, you know? They, the, the, the pressure of the public is theirs, and the newspapers, the New York Times, the television, and then all of these so-called leaders are sort of saying, okay, what is the war aim of Europe in this? Nobody knows. 
Every, every, every one of these guys running, doing his own business, going to Kiev, going on television, and everybody's happy. I am scared because the lines of Christopher Clark describing how we went into World War I, the sleepwalkers, the sleepwalkers are sleepwalking direct into a massive conflict with Russia. This is what's happening. And they don't want to say it. Now, the Russians say, be careful, it's going to be a war. And, and they mean it. They mean it because it's a military doctrine and because Ukraine is part of them. You like it or not, this is the way they look at it. And just a, a bit of history, quickly. Uh, exactly 80 years ago, in May of 1942, uh, in, in the middle of the war, there were six tank battles around Kharkiv, then called Kursk, six tank battles. And in the May 42 battle, the Russian army took its greatest defeat to the German, uh, losing 300,000 soldiers. And they kept going back with three more battles until they, they got Kharkiv, now Kharkiv, in 43. So the idea that the Russians will stop, uh, that they will lose, is crazy. If the war aim of Biden and of Europe behind Biden is to bring Russia to the knees, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. We went to Moscow. Napoleon went there and we had the Russian in Paris. The Germans tried to go to Moscow. They had the, the Russian in Berlin. The whole idea is that we will uh, beat the shit out of the murderer, take him to a tribunal, uh, treat him like a paria, a radioactive country, a huge Chernobyl that nobody has to touch. It's crazy. Now, going to your question, how do we end this? Europe has to wake up and tell the Americans to stop the bullshit here. The good news about this massive arms sales is that it gives us one card to put in. Before that, we had no card. We can now trade the stopping of the arms delivery in exchange for ceasefire and some kind of a discussion on the status of Ukraine and Donetsk. This is one trump card that we have, and we should use it for diplomacy, not to go to Moscow. So a massive effort should be done by the European, but that means getting our act together in Europe. The Poles don't agree, the Bolts don't agree, they want to go to victory, they want to go to Moscow because they're afraid that Russia will come back again, so they have to destroy Russia. Nobody's going to destroy Russia. And I want to go to Nikos because you spent a couple of years as Minister for Europe trying to get Europe to change. My experience is much less than Pierre. Well, you <laughs> but were. You, I, I say the same. You the same job. <laughs> but you had the same jobs trying to get Europe yeah, to move. Yeah. In this, and I'll get to American. In yes. Um, Pierre describes uh, the whole context from uh, the beginning of uh, 20th century today uh, in a very strict way, very straight and detailed. Uh, I want to say that uh, Europe uh, must stop the war and must save itself. Not with this uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, they are clones like Zelensky. This is very brutal words maybe, but this is almost true. Um, the Minsk Pact in 2014 and 2015 was guaranteed by Berlin and Paris. 
It was François Hollande and Merkel. They could not, they did not defend this. They did not manage to apply these pacts. Maybe it was the big diplomatic move. Never happened. Uh, Chancellor Scholz, five days before the Russian invasion, told, uh, met Putin and told that uh, we can sign a treaty that uh, Ukraine will not enter NATO. And the guarantees would be from Putin and Biden. And Zelensky rejected. Who is Zelensky? One of the reason why Minsk was never applied and the French and German did not succeed is because we had automatic sanction on Russia every six months in the EU. So we punish the Russian and we gave money to the Ukraine, IMF and so on. So the political class in Kiev, which was very divided in the hand of oligarchs, had absolutely no interest in facing a modification of the legislation for self-determination in the east of the country. So it never happened. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org donate. But Pierre has already said, and I think he's exactly right, this is about emotion and politics. So when you see American politicians campaigning in Kiev, that tells you something about the timeline. No, there cannot be a shift in the American political view on this until after November. So I would argue that nothing changes from the U.S. point of view. Now that we've set this, there, there's no opposition in the United States to downgrading Russia. Now, I saw not a single voice come out and say, you're out of your minds. So that's set in political cement at least through the end of the year. Our midterm elections are in November and all our politicians care about at the moment is that. So we're on, the United States is on an automatic pilot. We set war aims arbitrarily. We are providing this amazing amount of, of resources, uh, both military and financial. Uh, you have, you would have expected when the speaker showed up in Kiev that someone would have said, what's she doing there? Not a single voice in a single newspaper I can find said, what's she doing there? They said, of course she's there. We want to protect the Ukrainians. So from a time point of view, which is what we got to get to, um, I don't see anything except continued push, fight to the last Ukrainian, um, at least for the rest of the year from the U.S. point of view. Now, the, the, the question to you three is going to be, I could imagine a world where Europe somehow says the Americans are nuts, uh, that why are we going to fight the war so that they can have a political whatever, what, what's going on? So I know there's a, the, the, the conventional wisdom right now is that the West is united. Big surprise that, to Putin is that we are united. My sense is that it's a very superficial unity, um, disguising this difference over war aims, disguising this difference over decision-making, and disguising the difference over consequences which for the United States are mostly good. We're a food producer and an energy producer. Guess what prices have gone up dramatically? 
Not bad for the US. We can't manage ourselves, but it helps. So the question to you three is both the time question, am I wrong about this almost certainly drifts into the next year, your sleepwalking analogy? And secondly, are the seeds of a real break between Europe and America already planted in um, Ukraine? Well, um, before I answer this, let me sum up where we are. This whole thing is based on the notion that Putin is bluffing. So it's like five card or seven card stud American poker. The guy across you is bluffing. So you can continue to inflict punition. The problem on the other side is called Russian roulette. At some point, they'll shoot. There's more than one bullet so, in the chamber, unfortunately. So if I were to sum up the situation, as crazy as it is, it's a poker player on one side, a Czech and roulette, Russian roulette on the other side. And we're stuck in the middle. And I we don't Europe, like it. We Europe. We Europe and the rest of the world as well, because they will suffer the consequences. It's domestic American politics being played in Kiev. And yes, we're stuck uh, until the election. Now, uh, what happened in Europe until November? Uh, Macron was very busy with his campaign in the last three weeks, so he couldn't do very much. And in the meantime, Olaf, uh, Olaf Scholz uh, collapsed under pr pressure of his own coalition. And there's nobody else left. So either Macron takes the initiative again and can uh, listen to some of this and, and make sure that he finds a consensus to press on Zelensky some kind of a solution and offer at the same time the Russians to stop the arms, you know, as I said, use the arms uh, um, delivery as a weapon and then get Zelensky to, to accept no a status situation or nothing happens. What I sense is that there is a lot of tension inside the EU between the Poles, the Balts on one hand, and with the Slovaks also. For, for, for the sake of argument, <laughs> but also uh, to give a different perspective, um, in diplomacy, Henry Kissinger writes about the dilemma that Europe faces uh, with uh, France and Germany on one side and Russia on the other, and Central Europe... <laughs> Uh, sandwiched in between as a as a power vacuum that will always be filled by the major powers in Europe, and that somehow the balance of power in Europe pivots around who controls or who has that sphere of influence. That's the classical balance of power thinking. And when the Cold War ended, one key objective for the European countries in in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, was to, to end that vacuum, to squeeze it by becoming members of the European Union and NATO in order to end that classical balance of power thinking. Um, the Russians still mentally live in that world. The Chinese do. But I would claim that in Europe we no longer do. We are in a, in a situation of very messy policymaking with 27 countries, of whom some are larger, like France or, or Germany, and some are smaller. But at the end of the day, it is all 27 leaders sitting around a table and finding some kind of compromise, some kind of agreement, which makes it very messy and makes it very difficult to actually assert 
real leadership. You have Macron going to, to Moscow, you have Scholz going to Moscow, but it's even difficult for them to claim that they speak on behalf of the whole, of the whole 27. Um, and for the Eastern Europeans, and that also includes my own country and the possible future members, Sweden and Finland, who are very soon knocking on the door of NATO, um, there has been a, a long-term strategic aim to maintain a US military presence in Europe, basically because we think that when you have a, an insurance policy, um, why give it away? <laughs> Uh, as long as it comes to your aid when you need it. And, and that's what's being called upon now is the U.S. insurance policy in, in Europe uh, and vis-a-vis and, uh, -vis the Russians. Now, Pierre is, of course, totally right. There's not that big strategy behind it. And I think, Alan, at least in my, in my own analysis, uh, the timeline you're describing is probably realistic uh, and maybe it's even longer. Um, and we might, uh, as has been the case in the past, uh, have to fall back on some kind of American shuttle diplomacy peacemaking if Europe doesn't get its act together. That phase is far away. But the question is really what, I mean, uh, who, who starts the real peacemaking? What does the situation look like? Um, and what does the end game look like when we get there? And, and that's very far away, but we'll current multilateralism survive? Will the current economic order survive? Will, will the world as we know it in terms of uh, global relations survive? That, that very much depends on what the end game looks like. Will it be a full defeat of Putin? Putin? Probably not. Uh, will it be a conquest of Ukraine? Probably not. Will it be a messy, a messy situation there for many years to come? Most likely. And what's the impact of that for food, energy, finance, other global relations. When Kennedy met Khrushchev in Vienna for that first summit, which was disastrous for Mr. Kennedy, uh, he kept on, he'd been briefed by his guys, and he kept on telling Khrushchev his biggest concern uh, in a nuclear world was the possibility of miscalculation. He said it three times to Khrushchev, and Khrushchev finally explodes and says, if we go to war, it will not be a miscalculation. It's because we're going to war. So get this out of your head that we're not going to be the ones who make a miscalculation. Now, fast forward to this mess. Um, the risk of miscalculation, does it exist? Do the Russians know what they're doing? Are we really, we, NATO, prepared to go to war if, in fact, one of those guided missiles happens to land on that side of the border? What is the risk? The assumption so far has been this is contained and it's sort of a, like a prize fight where it's, you know, it's, it's got a ring around it and the only fight inside there, occasionally something in Russia gets hit, but that doesn't count. Uh, only counts if it triggers Article 5. So the question has to be, is that a sensible assumption for a war that drags apparently at least six months? Tomas, you suggested six, I may be being optimistic with my six months, it could go beyond that. Is it fair to assume that this is a containable catastrophe, uh, that there won't be a miscalculation, or maybe a calculation? If I were Zelensky and I were not having a good day, I might want to provoke Article 5. That's, that's what he's... I probably would want to provoke Article 5. But Zelensky has been doing this from day one. Delinsky's strategy, by the way, it's logical, is to internationalize the war. Yep. 
and he's been successful. That's a problem we have. He has international war. The people are getting killed on the Russian side of the border. I mean, uh, Russian generals are being killed by U.S. satellites and so on. So we are on the verge of something very nasty. Can the Russian miscalculate again? Yes, they miscalculated. They, they invaded Ukraine believing that they could do it quickly. Can, can they believe that a nuclear weapon... First of all, the doctrine says, this famous doctrine called escalate to de-escalate. If the conventional forces are in trouble, by the way, we had exactly the same strategy in the 1960s and 70s in Europe and NATO. If the conventional forces are in trouble, you escalate to tactical nuclear weapons and see what happens. There is an exchange, not an exchange, and if necessary, you go all out. Now, if this game starts, we have 91 million people killed in the first few minutes. So, uh, can this miscalculate? Yeah, I, I think there is a risk of miscalculation. There's somebody that I respect uh, quite a lot is William Burns, who is now the head of the CIA. He's the only sensible person in the Biden administration, in my mind. Uh, William Burns says, yes, you should take this seriously. Everybody else says they are bluffing. No, I don't think they are bluffing. They are not bluffing. The question is, how do we stop this? Europe is divided and we'll have a hard time finding a voice. But before November, we will have September. And after, in September, when people go back from vacation, they will find the price of gas, the price of heating, the price of food going up 15, 20%. And then government get in trouble. And then they have to find a way to stop this mess. So pressure will come from, from the street. Uh, much more than the geopolitical thinkers <coughs> like us. They will come from the street, and, and then the emotion for Zelensky will, will give way to another emotion, which is to be cold and to eat. Uh, that's the way I, I look at it somewhat cynically, but since we have no leaders but a number of, of very mediocre people who react to, to pressure like that, I think they will react to the pressure of the street, and hopefully there will be time still to calm this down. Now, much will depend, of course, of the evolution of the war on the ground. If the Russians take a lot of losses because of the armament that we are sending, a very effective armament, I mean, switchblade, this little drone that the American has, several thousand switchblade drones, it's like a computer. Any, any kid can use this and kill a general in his car uh, behind the mountain. Very simple to do. Now, if these weapons have a big effect on the Russian army, uh, we may not have all the time of the world until September or November. They may want to escalate before that. Because, again, and, and, I, and I think I know the Russian. I've discussed this with Putin himself back in 2013. Let me tell you this anecdote. It was in Valdai. It was François Fillon. We had dinner with uh, Putin. At the very same moment, the European sent a Troika, as they call it, to Kiev to negotiate a cooperation agreement with Ukraine. And the Europeans were demanding political reform, anti-corruption stuff, and so on, in exchange for two or three billion and a, and a cooperation agreement. Putin said, never, never. I will never let Ukraine go west. Never. We were shocked, Fillon and I. Uh, and I said, what do you mean never? He said never, okay. Uh, it's a bumper days. sticker, never means never. It's like no means no. 
couple of days later, he put $15 billion on the table in Kiev to Yanukovych and he said, you stay with us in our common market, you don't go there. And Yanukovych said yes, and then the street went to Maidan, and then the revolution, and Yanukovych had to leave, and the American ambassador was in the street, and my friend Victoria Nuland was in the street, and they called it a CIA coup, and frankly, there's a little bit of a CIA coup in the, the way Yanukovych was sent home. And that's where we are now. And after that, you had Ukraine, uh, Crimea. After this Yanukovych thing, he took over Crimea and then uh, the war in Donetsk started. Voila, this is a, this is a story. So to, to expect Putin to change his mind now, never. Never means never. So we have to find a way. Now that it's costly, use a weapon delivery as a tool and tell Zelensky to stop the bullshit and agree on something, which is a status, of course, of neutrality in the center of Europe, plus some internal reform. Uh, hopefully, he doesn't lose too much, but already he has lost Mariupol, he has lost Kherson, he has lost access to the, to the Black Sea, he has lost a lot of uh, coal and, and, and steel factories. It's bad for the future of Ukraine. Yeah, and Poland uh, dreams to annex some ground Ukraine. This is actually an incredibly important point because what Pierre just said was that this will be the first time putting the Balkans in a special space that we actually change borders in Europe as a result of conflict. So that Pandora's box is back open again. Thank you for this conversation. Unfortunately, I think the odds are high, way too high that we will be discussing these issues for months, perhaps for years to come. Again, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>